This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, let's pray. Our loving Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the Sabbath, and we thank you for the opportunity we have to come and study the Bible together. We just invite the Holy Spirit, Lord, to be present in our midst, and we pray that you will help us to understand and to gain a blessing from our time in your word. And may we also grasp the seriousness of the message and the times in which we live. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you've been following along with us for the last couple of meetings, you will know we've addressed the first angel that was flying in the midst of heaven. And the very first words out of the first angel's mouth was, Fear God and give glory to him. And we recognized that in the days in which we are living, that that message is perfect for right now. The world needs to fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him. In the second angel's message, we heard how Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And we unpacked that as we went through that Bible study together. And now we are up to the third angel's message. And I'm going to begin by putting it on the screen for you. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through to 12. The Bible says... Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his forehead, sorry, mark of, whoever receives the mark on of his name. Sorry, I've read that wrong. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Amen. Now, that is a very solemn message that you just read there. In fact, it sounds like the most fearful warning that has ever been addressed to the human race. And yet, here's an amazing fact. You didn't think you'd get amazing facts in this seminar, did you? Well, <laughs> here's an amazing fact for you. Over a hundred years ago, Ellen White wrote these words about the third angel's message. She said, Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. Very interesting. In other words, according to Mrs. White, she said that justification by faith is not the introduction or the preamble, but it is at the very heart of the third angel's message. And when I read this quote, I have to ask the question, and I hope you're asking it as well, how can this be? Why does she say that? Well, let's give this message some context. Notice that the third angel follows the first and the second. Again, this is highlighting the fact that there is a sequential order to the messages. You can't have a third unless you've got the first and the second, right? These messages are presented 
in order and they fly together. So it becomes an unbreakable threefold unit of messages that go to the world. And uh, that's why she says in manuscript 32, 1896, there cannot be a third without the first and the second. These messages we are to give to the world. Now, do you remember that when Revelation uh, 14 opens, we discovered, and I talked about this in the previous session, that there are three scenes that John writes about in Revelation chapter 14. The first scene he sees is 144,000 standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. The second scene that we see in that same chapter is the three angels' messages flying in the midst of heaven. And then the third and final scene is a great harvest scene, which we know represents the second coming of Jesus based on a clue we find in Matthew chapter 13. Now, go back to the first scene with the 144,000 standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. The 144,000 stand with the Lamb because they worship the Lamb. They worship Jesus. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's the most important thing you need to know about the 144,000. But in Babylon, we find out that they are not worshipping the Lamb. They are worshipping somebody else. And the third angel's message tells us who they are worshipping. The third angel tells us... In uh, verses 9 and 10, it says, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the, his, the cup of his indignation. So while they worship the lamb on Mount Zion, in Babylon they are worshiping the beast and his image. And not only that, the third angel says that anybody who worships the beast and his image, he receives the mark of the beast and drinks of the wine of the wrath of God. What is the wine of the wrath of God? Well, we'll unpack this a little bit more a little bit later. But Revelation chapter 15 verse 1 tells us that the wrath of God is poured out in the seven last plagues. And we will look at that in a little more detail just a little bit later. So this, these seven last, last plagues are really just a foretaste of the complete destruction of the wicked that occurs at the end of the millennium, at the end of the thousand years, which we find in Revelation chapter 20, where the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. That is, they will be completely destroyed. So friends, this is a very, very serious message. And because the whole world is in danger of worshipping the beast and his image, the angel addresses his message not just to Australia, not just to New Zealand. The angel addresses the message to anybody. It says, if anyone worships the beast and his image. So friends, this is a reminder that in the last conflict, in the final crisis of Earth's history, you and I are each responsible for whom we choose to worship. Now, the beast and his image. The third angel's message is a warning to prepare the world for a fearful scene. Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 14 are a detailed explanation for the war that we find begins in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. And just for the sake of your own uh, understanding of what I'm saying here. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, talks about the, how the great controversy begins. It says, And war broke out in heaven. 
Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And verse... uh, 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. So these chapters are a detailed explanation of how the devil, who is angry because he knows his time is short, how he is going to come and rebel against God and lead the world in rebellion against God with him. Now, who is the beast. What is this beast that we are talking about? We've kind of looked at this in a little bit of detail in our previous session. However, you are students of Bible prophecy. So tell me, what does the beast represent in Bible prophecy? You got a hand. Sorry? Well, a beast in Bible prophecy represents a kingdom or a political uh, power, okay? So we're coming there. So this is very interesting. Now, is this a surprising thing for the Bible to do? No, it isn't. Countries today use animals as emblems for their own countries as well. So for the United States, you use an eagle. You have an eagle. I'm going to tell you what we use in Australia. And unfortunately, I was hoping to surprise you all, and I had three Australians come and sit down the front here. So for everybody but the Australians, (laughs) do you know what symbols, what uh, animals we have on our coat of arms? Yes, and? (laughs) Everybody says that. (laughs) All right, let me show you. This is our, these are our emblems. We have a kangaroo, and we have an emu. It's a big bird, all right? It's not a chicken, it's a big bird. Probably comes up about, you know, it's tall. But do you know why we have those two animals on our, on our, oh, one of the Aussies knows. Brian, why do we have them there? They can't go backwards, they always go forwards. So that's why, there you go. Little amazing fact for you to share with your friends about Australia. But anyhow, it's no surprise. So in Revelation 13, we are told that there, is a, there are two beasts in Revelation 13. There is a sea beast and there is an earth beast. And we are told that this earth beast has two horns and we are also told several identifying characteristics of this earth beast. Now, one of the early Adventist pioneers was a man by the name of J.N. Andrews. And he, he identified it based on serious Bible study. He identified this beast as the United States of America. Uh, I just want to, I had some pictures here for you, but they're obviously a bit later. Okay, we'll come back to that. Okay. In other words, in Revelation 13, uh, he said that this earth beast will perform great signs and wonders and cause all who dwell upon the earth by means of these miracles to form an image to the beast and which all men must worship. And we will look at the image in just a moment. But notice these verses, Revelation 13, 15 and 16. He, that is the earth beast, was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, 
to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. So in other words, there is a time that is coming when an attempt will be made to force everyone to worship the beast. And those who do will receive a mark, the Bible says, on their forehead or on their hand. And this mark that they receive because they worship the beast is called the mark of the beast. Those who refuse to worship the beast and his image will be facing a death penalty. Friends, this is a choice that at the end of time, every living person will have to make. They will have to choose if they will worship the beast or die. Now, the, the warning of the third angel outlines in graphic detail the consequences that will come to those who accept the seductive politics of spiritual Babylon. And we, we talked about in the previous session, if you missed it, you'll have to go and listen to it because this builds on that. But the Babylon has seductive politics. She is uniting uh, church and state. And if you read the Bible carefully, you discover without, without a doubt the beast that is mentioned in the third angel's message, Revelation 14, 9 through 11, is the same beast that we find mentioned in Revelation 13, which is also a prophetic development of the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7. Both beasts ascend out of the sea in Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. And based on all of its identifying marks, which is a whole other Bible study, but we're just touching the very surface in this one, the beast is evidently the papal form of the fourth empire for it receives its power and seat from the dragon, which is imperial Rome. I found this picture here just because this is Daniel 7. You remember there were four beasts that come in Daniel chapter 7. And uh, you'll notice that the beast we find in Revelation 13 mixes them all together. Okay, So if this is the case, then the image to the beast must be another religious body clothed with power and authority to put the saints to death. So when the Bible says that the land beast, the United States, will make an image to the first beast or the papacy, sea beast, which we identified in the previous one, that's, all right, it means that it will develop a system that resembles that of the first beast. Is everybody with me still? All right, good. All right, so let's just put some quotes on the screen for you. Here we have our lamb-like beast. All right, Great Controversy, page 445. The image to the beast represents that form of apostate Protestantism which will be developed when the Protestant churches shall seek the aid of the civil power for the enforcement of their dogmas. All right, so church and state will be united enough evidently in the future in order to enforce religious laws that closely resemble that of the papal system. That's what the Bible says. Um, again, this is from Two Selected Messages, page 367, paragraph 4, not 3674. The scriptures teach that popery is to regain its lost supremacy and that the fires of persecution will be rekindled through the time-serving concessions of the so-called Protestant world. All right, so that's the beast. That's its image. What about the mark of the beast? John uses a Greek word here. Ah, 
Charagma, I probably said that wrong. Yep, no, my theology companion here is telling me I am right. <laughs> That's good. He studies at Andrews, so that means it's true, okay? So in the time of Caesar, this word was used to refer to Caesar's image that was found on coins. In Australia, we have the queen's face on the back of our coins, so it would be like that. Or the imperial seal that was placed on official documents. Or even to the brand, that's a brand, that they used to carve a mark onto animals, to brand animals. The mark on the forehead or on the hand perhaps also connects to the ancient practice among the Israelites during prayer time when a phylactery, which is a fancy word to describe a small leather box which had passages of the Torah in it, it was bound either to the forehead, they put it here, or they'd bind it to their hand. And this was to represent conscious acceptance of God's will reflected through his commandments. That's why they bound it on their head. Or uh, the readiness to fulfill this will, but through the actions in one's life. And that was symbolized by tying it to one's wrist or to their hand. So the mark of the beast then on the forehead or on the hand represents the mark of authority of the apostate church, the replacement of God's righteous standards with human standards. And I've got this on the screen. Just as the mark of the beast reflects the name or character of the Antichrist, so the sealing of God's servants in Revelation 7 reflects the confirmation of their godlike moral character. And that's kind of a little bit without context. So let me just say that in the Hebrew context, a name was synonymous with character. That's why the 144,000, they have their father's name written on them. They have, uh, God has molded their characters. They have, they have beheld the lamb, they are with the lamb, and they have his character. So a name is synonymous of character. And the mark or seal indicates whether or not a person has a relationship of belonging to either Christ, the lamb, or Antichrist, the beast. John deliberately contrasts the mark of the beast with the seal of God. The mark of, be the, mark of the beast representing disobedience to one or more of God's commands in order to obey the beast power. And then, of course, the end time seal of God representing the divine recognition of obedience of faith to God's commandments. And by the way, little amazing fact, another one. The seal of God the Bible only ever describes it as being placed on the forehead. It never describes it as going on the hand. The mark of the beast you receive in your, on your, in your mind or on your hand, but the seal of God is placed in the, in the mind, by the way, and that's where you make your, your decisions here. So why would this be? Because, friends, God's seal is placed on the forehead because when we are truly sealed, it will influence what we do. When we have truly chosen to surrender our lives to Jesus and he has control over us, we're in an abiding relationship with him, that will be shown by the fruit we bear in our lives. Does that make sense? All right. So friends, as we contrast the mark of the beast, recognizing that it is a sign of, of um, ownership as well, we discover that the mark of the beast would be enforcing worship on any other day other than God's day. If you look at Revelation chapter 14, there is a decided link in verse 7 to the Sabbath, which we looked at in our very first session. Welcome to those who've just joined us. We looked at that. It says, worship him who made. That's 
That is language that is directly borrowed from the Sabbath commandment in the book of Exodus. But there is a link from that to right here in verse 9 where it says uh, to how it relates to the mark of the beast because they're now worshipping the beast instead of worshipping God. So friends, when we keep the seventh day Sabbath, this is no just little thing. This is a very beautiful thing. It is rich with meaning because when we keep the seventh day Sabbath, we are resting in the completed work of Christ for us when he, when he, when he brought our salvation. Amen. amen. See, when I do this, it means amen. amen. <laughs> All right, this is a wonderful thing. Friends, keeping the Sabbath is not a legalistic requirement. It is a love response to Jesus because I am choosing to rest in the atonement that Jesus has brought for me on Calvary. Keeping the Sabbath acknowledges that God created us and therefore He is worthy of worship. And you know what? That's so important today in a world that believes we are just the result of billions of years of evolutionary luck. You know, we're just over-advanced fungi hurtling through cold and meaningless space. But the Bible tells us that God made us. We have dignity, not deity, because we are made in the image of God. And I don't know about you, but I like that. I remember I asked my dad many years ago, Dad, where did I come from? And he looked at me and he said, that's easy. We found you on special in Grace Brothers, which is a store we had in Australia at the time. But knowing that we are made in God's image is a wonderful thing to know. It's just a beautiful thought. So listen, it reminds us that we're not orphans in this universe. We have a heavenly father, which means that the mark of the beast is merely a human attempt to substitute a human day based on human authority, based on man's works. So in the Sabbath, when we keep the Sabbath, it is a symbol of trusting the creator God as our redeemer and resting in him. When we think about the Sabbath against the backdrop of the third angel's message, friends, this day that we are now keeping holy right now, it, is, it gains tremendous relevance and power. And I'd like you to notice with me this quote, the one part, and this is from a book, what, does the, what the Bible says about the end time by John Pauline. I like this quote. The one part of the Ten Commandments that is not logical is the command to worship on Saturday rather than on some other day. Such a command is so lacking in logic and self-interest that secular people find it easy to ignore. To keep the Sabbath is to take God at his word in spite of the fact that the five senses can perceive no evidence that to do so is reasonable. It is this very irrelevance that makes the Sabbath an ideal test of loyalty at the end. There can be no test of loyalty where self-interest is involved. So that's a very powerful thought, I thought, to add to our reflection here. But friends, the Bible is telling us in Revelation 13 that eventually the sea beast, obedience to the sea beast will be enforced by a political enactment of a death sentence on all who refuse to worship the beast's image. An economic boycott will also follow this, and it's, implement, it's implemented on all those who refuse to receive the mark of the beast. Acceptance of the mark of the beast will signify a public confession of faith in allegiance to authority that is 
clearly against God, either by consent, which is symbolized on the forehead, or through the mere act of following along with the crowd as symbolized on the hand. And I just want to put two uh, quotes on the screen. Uh, Sunday keeping is not yet the mark of the beast. Very important that people understand this. And will not be until the decree goes forth causing men to worship this idol Sabbath. The time will come when this day will be the test, but that time has not come yet. And again, Review and Herald, April 14, 1896. The forces of darkness will unite with human agents who have given themselves into the control of Satan and the same scenes that were exhibited at the trial, rejection and crucifixion of Christ will be revived. Remember that the Son of God was put to death when there was a union between church and state. Whenever church and state unite, it's a bad thing. Through yielding to satanic influences, men will be transformed into fiends. And those who were created in the image of God, who were formed to honor and glorify their creator, will become the habitation of dragons. And Satan will see in an apostate race his masterpiece of evil, men who reflect his own image. So you'll either reflect Jesus or you will end up reflecting men after the image of Satan. So friends, God, this, for this very reason, for all of that we're studying here this afternoon, for this very reason, God has made rejection of the mark of the beast and of, of the mark of the beast an essential qualification for the conquerors at the end of time, for his victorious people at the end of time. Because the mark of the beast, when you accept it, it represents the mentality of the Antichrist, which is the disposition of self-exaltation and rebellion against God. Uh, Revelation 14, 9 and 10. Uh, let's recap. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So friends, the third angel's message here alerts the world to the inescapable consequences that come with drinking the wine of Babylon and possessing the mark of the beast. If you don't worship the beast, you will die because the Bible says that he will cause all to be put to death. But if you do worship the beast, you will receive his mark and you will receive, you will also have to drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is full strength and it is not, which means it's no longer mixed with mercy. In other words, you will lose out on eternal life. And uh, you can see here why this is so important, this message. Are you following? Because this is a life and death message. And you think, we, we think, we sometimes kid ourselves into thinking, yep, we know that the seventh day is Sabbath and we'll be fine. But you know what? Satan managed to fool one th you know, a whole third of heaven's holy angels. into believing his lies. If he can trick the angels, then you and I need to be very sure that our feet are grounded firmly in the word of God. We must have our faith founded upon God's word at the end of time because it's going to take a faith grounded in God's word to enable us to stand. And friends, as all of this is taking place 
at the end of time, there will be just two camps. The whole world will be polarized into two camps. On the one side, you will have those who fear God and worship him. On the other side, you will have those who worship the beast and his image. On one hand, you have those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And on the other side, you have those whose names are missing from its pages. One will find rest in God and peace with God eternally. The other, the Bible says, they will have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That's verse 11. And so we find signs of the times, March 22, 1910. The great decision now to be made by everyone is whether he will receive the mark of the beast and his image or the seal of the living and true God. And friends, I want you to know that there was a time, you know, rewind a hundred years ago maybe, and it was, it felt, many people thought, oh, these things are just a bit far-fetched. But you know what? As we watch what is happening and the signs that are taking place around us in front of our eyes in the religious and in the political world today, we can see that these things are happening, that Bible prophecy is coming to life right before our very eyes. Uh, we've seen sites like this in the not-too-distant past when, what was his name? John Paul II passed away, and look, his, his funeral was attended by three former presidents and a president. And then, just this past year, October 15, 2015, last year, can you believe it? Pope Francis tweeted this. He said, work is important, but so too is rest. Shouldn't we learn to respect times of rest, especially Sundays? So Sunday is coming. Prophecy is being fulfilled. Things are happening just as God said that they would happen. Now is the time for us to be staying with Jesus and ensuring that we have the seal of the living God. Amen? Amen. I amen myself. <laughs> now, I come from Australia, and I just want to tell you how important it is for us to be sealed with the seal of the living God. When I checked my bags in in Sydney, they put a sticker on it. And I'm going to call that, I'm going to liken that to a seal because I put this sticker on it and it said that it would come straight to Kentucky, my bags. And I just had to pick them up in Dallas at Clear Customs and then check them on and they would come all the way through. Well, we got to Dallas, we picked up our bags after a long flight, we checked them back in again and we arrived in Kentucky and the bags were not here. Terrible. And so you know what happened? We prayed, we worried a little bit but guess what? The bags showed up. You know why? Because they had that label on them. They were going to the right destination, so we didn't have to worry. And friends, if we have the seal of the living God, if we are sealed by the living God, we have nothing to worry about because we, he will take us to the right destination. Amen? So I want to now share with you something that a friend of mine shared with me concerning the seven plagues and how these represent the wrath of God being poured out. Revelation 15 verse 1 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So that gives us the clue as to why this is, uh, the plagues are the wrath of God. And we look at these and we discover something. In the same way that in the time of ancient Israel, when God was delivering his people from Egypt, do you remember that when God protected his people, do you remember that? 
And on the, when the Passover angel came over, those who were in the houses that had the blood applied to the lintel of the door, they were safe. In the same way, those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb at the end of time, we will be safe as well. Those who are hid in Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, all these things happen to them as examples written for our instruction. So there is a, there's an application for us today. Ancient Israel are a template for God's people in the last days. How can we see this? Well, friends, both groups, ancient Israel and God's remnant, both were persecuted and both will be persecuted. They are pressured to break God's law. They appear helpless and they are protected during the plagues. Deliverance comes after the plagues in both cases. Very interesting right here. So question, why would a loving God pour out the seven last plagues? Why these specific plagues and how can we see the love of God in them? Well, friends, if all prophecy is Christ-centered, what do the seven last plagues have to teach us about Jesus? Little point, go listen to this sermon. This is from Mark Finley's GYC series 2007. He actually shared these points that we're going to share with you now. But uh, go and look this up if you have the time. Notice this, the first plague, painful sores on those with the mark of the beast. Man's message at the end of time, if you take the mark of the beast, we'll give you physical security. Well, when the first plague falls, it shows that that, that is not true, that this, these words were not true, because God's message to us is this, all physical security is found in Jesus Christ. Amen? The second plague, the sea turns to blood. Every creature in it dies. Man's message is, if you take the mark of the beast, we will give you economic security. But God's message is all economic security comes in Christ. Plague three, springs and rivers of water become blood because they martyred God's people. Man's message, if you obey God, you will die. But God's message is all life is in Christ. You can see how these are all Christ-centered. If we go to the heart of it, the sun scorches many people in the fourth plague. Man's message, the way and day of worship don't matter. But God's message says all true worship is in Christ. And then lastly, that I'm going to share with you here, there is, of course, two more plagues, but we've only got five here. Uh, darkness on the kingdom and throne of the beast, man's message. What we are teaching is light and truth, but darkness falls. So that's not true. Why? Because all truth is in Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And so I encourage you to go and look at that message that I had here on the screen and you'll see, you can study this a little bit further. But we see, friends, that the gospel can even be found in the seven last plagues. We're finding it in the three angels' messages as we've been going along. We can find it in the seven last plagues as well. And so those who are protected from the plagues, the righteous who experience the goodness of the gospel, even while the plagues are falling, friends, they have been sealed. God's seal is his sign of approval that his angels place on the foreheads of all those who reject the mark of the beast. And now we come to the crowning moment of the third angel's message. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the, the faith of Jesus. What is the result of the three angels' messages? It's right here. Here is the patience of the saints. Who is left after all of this at the end of time? The saints are left. Amen? And when the Bible says here, it means under these circumstances, here is, we could say, the endurance 
of the saints. Here are those who hang in there and never give up. Jesus said when he walked this earth, he said, he that endures to the end shall be saved. Endurance. We're not in it for a sprint. We've got to endure with Jesus. I think about the first inventors. When they were inventing cars, they would go between five, you know, about five miles an hour, or three to five kilometers per hour, if you work in a system like me. And they would go, so they would go very slow, the first cars, and they would break down all the time. And people would ride past these people trying to drive cars in their horse-drawn buggies and carriages, and they would look at these people breaking down and they'd laugh at them and say, oh, why didn't you get a horse? But can you imagine if the inventors listened to the crowd? We'd be catching the six o'clock horse instead of our six o'clock train or our six o'clock bus. So friends, endure. There is a reward for those who endure. We have to pace ourselves and allow the Spirit of God to fill us so that we can bear witness to the gospel in a time that is coming where there will be great persecution. And I don't know about you, but I want to be part of the saints. I want to be one, part of these people right here who have the patience of the saints. Do you? Amen. So how do we get patience? Well, from a practical standpoint, every single one of us needs patience. We need it at home. We need it in board meetings. We need it in the workplace. We need patience. And so how do we get it? Well, patience isn't something that comes very naturally. Human nature is not very patient. Patience comes from abiding with Christ. I have here... I've got something on my screen here. Oh, I'm giving away clues. Go back here. All right, I'll read it to you. All right. It can only be found in your personal relationship and dependence upon Jesus. This is patience. It is only through connection to Jesus that we have the patience and endurance and the ability to wait because we can see the big picture and we can trust the one who is painting it. When I think about this, I think about the great Bible characters. And there's one Bible character that instantly comes to my mind, but I'm sure you can think of others. And that is Caleb. Caleb was a man. He had the patience of the saints. He was a saint with patience. He was forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of the unfaithfulness of everybody else around him. But instead of complaining, the Bible never records that Caleb ever complained. But he still remained faithful to God and he was still patiently holding on to the promise of God. We need to be like Caleb. We need to be like Jesus. Be patient in our times when, pers when our persecution comes. And revelation is clear that there will, there will be very serious times ahead of us where patient endurance will be necessary. And you know what? It says, here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Seventh-day Adventists are often teased because we, people call us legalists because we keep the commandments of God. A pastor once had a church member come up to them and say, oh, pastor, guess what? I am going to the Holy Lands. Oh, fantastic, he said. And, and, he, and then the member said, well, when I get there, I'm going to be climbing Mount Sinai. Oh, that's wonderful. Good for you. Then the church member said, and do you know what I'm going to do when I get to the top of Mount Sinai? No, what are you going to do? I am going to read the Ten Commandments out loud. 
And the pastor looked at his church member and he said to them, well, why don't you just stay at home and keep them (laughs) instead of going all the way around the world to read them on top of a mountain? Why don't you just stay at home and keep them? And friends, God has revealed to his people that his law is good. It is just, it it is holy, it is true, it is beautiful. It is a transcript of his character. And so at the end of time, God raises up a people who keep both his moral law, the Ten Commandments, and his physical laws, a health message. He raises them up to be obedient to both at the end of time. Again, contrasting between the beast and how God will work at the end of time. The beast will force worship. The beast will uh, use political coercion to win adherence and deceptive miracles. But the lamb... The lamb works differently. He uses spiritual persuasion. He knocks on our heart's doors and he woos us through the word and through the Holy Spirit and speaking to our hearts. Which means, friends, those at the end of time who choose to be faithful to Jesus, they are faithful because they have learned to distrust their emotions. They have learned to distrust what they see. They're not relying on any miracle to tell them truth. They they have learned to stand on the word of God alone. Amen. Amen. All right. Not only that, but we find that the remnant that we find here, here is the patience of the saints. These saints have the same characteristics as the remnant of Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. And there we find another characteristic of the remnant people at the end of time is that they have the testimony of Jesus, which we understand to be the spirit of prophecy. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we were gifted, we believe, through the ministry of Sister Ellen White, who ministered to this church faithfully through her messages of counsel and even correction and inspiration for 70 years. And as a result of her ministry, the fruit of her ministry, we have now a worldwide education system. We have a worldwide health system. We've got churches everywhere and, and universities because of what God did through her ministry. She is the most prolific female American author in all of human history. What God did through her is remarkable. So God has blessed us. And indeed, those at the end of time, God's people at the end of time, will take counsel and they will, they will be blessed by this, this testimony of Jesus as well. Well, what about the faith of Jesus? What is the faith of Jesus? I've put a beautiful definition for you on the screen. I can't word it any better because the person who said this, I felt, said it the best. It is the quality of faith that Jesus had, given to me as a gift by God at conversion. That measure of faith, that quality of faith, that seed of faith grows as we study his word. What is the faith of Jesus? It is the ability to trust God as a friend well known. It is Jesus' faith that comes as a result of knowing him operating in my heart. Amen? Anyone want to guess who said that? Does it sound like Mark Finley to you? Because it is. <laughs> okay. I heard him say that, but I'm going to write that down. That is a beautiful definition right there. And so the faith of Jesus, it leads us to obedience to him. And it leads us to have patient endurance as well. We need to realize that but for the grace of God, our entire dependence is in the doing and dying of Jesus. Our title, our fitness for heaven is not based on anything that Sharissa does. It is based entirely and found entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And so we summarize here the three angels' messages 
hit at the core of who we are as Seventh-day Adventists. These messages hit a revival note. They hit re-righteousness. They hit reformation and restoration. All of these things are found in the three angels' messages. These end-time people qualify as saints because they respond to God's messages. And the Bible tells us also that there is a fourth angel that comes along and amplifies the messages that we find here so that we have what we call the latter rain. There's Revelation 18. There's another angel that comes and amplifies it. And I told you in the beginning that Revelation 14 has three scenes. Number one, the 144,000, then the three angels' messages, and then you have the great harvest. When the latter rain falls before the great harvest, it brings that harvest ready to be ripe and to be harvested. And then it's just three, two, one, liftoff, and Jesus comes back. Amen? That's why these messages are so important. And friends, when the future, in the future, the Holy Spirit descends with Pentecostal power upon his remnant church as they are proclaiming these messages throughout the world, the issues in the final conflict between Christ and Satan will be made clear and plain to all. The powerful angel of Revelation 18, he meets the end crisis with a loud cry and added power to reinforce the second angel's message. The fall of Babylon is now complete and worldwide and the gospel has been spread to the world. This loud cry represents the final call for God's people to separate from Babylon. It is the last warning that is given here. It is the ultimate plea of heaven coming from the heart of God to, to escape before the seven last plagues fall. And there have been many times in earth's history where God has called his people to flee, but never has the call to flee been as serious as the call that we find in the three angels' messages. It is an urgent plea. The wording there is very earnest and very, very urgent. It's a little bit like, it's not really like this, but as I was driving to the airport, my mum dropped us off at the airport on our way here in Sydney, and I saw there was a, a speed camera ahead of us, and she was driving, and I knew she hadn't seen it because we were talking. So I said, oh, mum, you might want to slow down. She didn't notice because we were talking. Got a little bit closer. Mum, you might want to slow down. We got so close to that speed camera and I said, Mom, slow down. She slowed down because we're getting so close. The, the, the warning had to, the words had to change. The tone had to change. And it's a little bit like this with the messages. We are so close at the end of time and the dangers are so great. God gives us a very, very urgent message. You know, if anyone worships the mark of the beast, anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. It is a very earnest and a very urgent message. And if your house is on fire... You don't want people to just say, hey, uh, your house is on fire. No, you want someone to give you that message loud and clear. The house is on fire. Get out. <laughs> and that's a little bit how it is here with God's messages at the end of time. And so in the final conflict, in the same way, by the way, in the same way that, let me say this, as Jerusalem received her final judgment, after, re after rejecting the Pentecostal appeal of the risen Christ, so end time Babylon receives her judgment only after the last Pentecostal, Pentecostal appeal of Christ as well. Does that make sense? All right. So here we have this. Now I want to put this, I've already had it on the screen, so let's read it. Testimonies, volume 9, page 19. In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. 
To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's messages. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is not just any church. This is a movement of Bible prophecy. It is a movement and a fulfillment of the promised coming of Elijah in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where we are told Elijah would come again and restore all things. Friends, the three angels' messages of Revelation 14 are an Elijah message to restore all things. It's the last Elijah message in salvation history. And in the same way that God sends this message at a time when there is global apostasy, just as when Elijah uh, was brought to give his message at a time when there is apostasy, so too, at the end of time, in the same way Elijah received a wonderful reward for his completed mission, so too at the end of time, God's people, they will be blessed with a wonderful reward at the completion of their mission too. What will that be? We will see Jesus. Jesus will come and we can go home. So friends, your response to heaven's final appeal will determine your eternal destiny, your response to Jesus. So how is this message connected with righteousness by faith, justification by faith? Well, if you think back into the history of the Christian church and to the Reformation, way back in the history of our church, you go back to Wycliffe and Huss and Calvin and Luther, and you look at the lives of these reformers and you notice something. What do you notice? You go back and you recognize that all of them fell in love with Jesus and embraced the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They realized that they couldn't be saved through their own deeds. And when they realized that, they naturally began to break and to separate from every vestige of Babylon. They wanted nothing to do with Babylon because they were just so in love with Jesus. They were just following truth. They found themselves embracing this sola fide, the faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, the three angels' messages is not about identifying some false religion. It is about identifying Jesus Christ as a sole means to salvation. Amen? I will amen myself. That was a good amen moment. But I'll say it again. The three angels' messages is not about identifying false religion. It is about identifying Jesus Christ as the sole means to salvation. The people who give the three angels' messages follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's what the Reformers did. That's what the early Advent pioneers did, and that's what we must do as well. And so, friends, whenever we preach the cross... We are preaching the first angel's message for the gospel. We have, that is the everlasting gospel. And the gospel is the laying of the glory of man in the dust. Babylon represents trusting in my own works, in my own system of worship in order to save myself and instead of keeping my eyes on Jesus. And so when I preach salvation by faith and by God's grace instead of works, we are preaching the message of the second angel. And the third angel warns us against trusting in our own works and, and calls us to, and gives us the Sabbath rather, as a sign that we have chosen to trust in Jesus for our salvation and not in man's works. So when I preach 
uh, the third angel's message, when I preach the Sabbath, when I'm preaching about resting in Jesus, that is the third angel's message as well. Can you see this? It's all Christ-centered. After his defeat in the Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon was exiled to an island, the island of Sicily. And history tells us that as time and age took their toll on him, the little emperor would sometimes stand looking at the great map of Europe. And as he would look at it on that map, he had placed a red circle around the place where he had suffered his ultimate defeat. And we are told that history says that many times Napoleon would come, he would look at that map, he would tap his finger on that red circle there and he would say this, if it were not for that red spot, I would be emperor of all Europe. Well, friends, in, in a very similar way, Satan, when he looks at history, he points to Calvary and he places his finger there and he says, if it wasn't for that red spot called Calvary, I would be king of the world. Friends, thanks to Jesus, greater days and a bright future await those who trust him and who choose to put their faith in him. We're told that Jesus, he died the death that we deserved, that we might have eternal life. He could not bear the thought of an eternity without us. That's why he came down to die for us. And I think about the Garden of Gethsemane, where in that garden, Jesus experienced the absence of the life-sustaining presence of his Father. And he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. And he chose, he went through with what he did because he loved us. He drank of that cup. He died the death that we deserve so that we don't have to drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Jesus drank that for us. Amen? And so, those who have rejected the cross, they are the ones that have placed their trust in their own works. Instead of resting in God, they receive the mark of the beast and they will end up drinking the cup that Jesus drank for them in Gethsemane. By rejecting the Sabbath rest and God's grace, they choose to drink the cup themselves. It's all a choice at the end. In closing, a story, and then we'll read through this together. A man was privileged to sit in one of the Air Force fighter jets. And on the particular day as he was sitting in this fighter jet, it was flying in formation with several other fighter jets. And as this man was watching his pilot, he noticed that his pilot, the whole time while they were flying, his pilot had his eye on the wing of the plane in front, just kept watching the wing of that plane the whole time, during the whole formation. And even as they're coming down to land, the man is watching it, he's getting nervous. Finally, he says to him, uh, when are you going to look at the ground? When are you going to look down? And without looking down, his pilot said to him, when our wheels touch the ground, that's when I'll look down. Until then, I'm not looking down. I added a whole lot to that. All he actually said was, until our wheels touch the ground. So, friends, in the same way that that pilot, his eyes were fixed on the wing of the plane in front. Friends, we need to keep our eyes fixed on the lamb at the end of time. Don't look to the right. Don't look to the left. Don't look at what people say. Don't follow what the crowd does. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes in the word of God. Keep studying God's word and you will be safe. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, then he will, he will help us and he will save us and we can have an eternity with him. Amen? So, the three angels' messages... They are not scary. They are not something we should be afraid of. 
These messages are saturated with the righteousness of Jesus. They're talking about the everlasting gospel. They're calling people back to true worship of the living God. They're they're talking about being totally focused on Jesus and totally relying upon him, being completely surrendered to him. They are about uplifting Jesus and his righteousness to a world that is being deceived, to a world that is drunk with the wine of Babylon. Now is the time for us to proclaim these messages under the power of the Holy Spirit to the world around us. Amen? All right, well, that brings us to the end of this message. And I just want to ask you, are you willing to be one of God's last day three angel messages to the world? Amen. Let us pray together. Loving Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the messages that your word contains. I pray, Lord, that as we continue to study these beautiful messages, I pray that you will help us to be able to have a clear understanding of your word and so that we can share these messages with others so that one day soon when Jesus comes, we will meet you in the clouds and we will meet you, Lord, with our loved ones and friends and those whom we've been able to share Jesus with. We love you and we praise you and we thank you for hearing our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.